Bet you can hear me now. Little switch on there. Fun little button. Hey, how's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, welcome to Grace Community Church. Welcome everybody who's uh, tuning in online, Grace Live. Hey, my name's Matt. I work with the teenagers here at Grace. I'm fired up to be here with you this morning. Who's fired up to be here? It's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a big deal. Uh, Holy Week's a big deal. Easter is a very big deal. Easter is the event that is the foundation of the Christian faith. And uh, I'm excited to be here with you today to look ahead towards that event. Uh, you know, I've been thinking about Easter coming up and it dawned on me a couple of weeks back, thinking about the feel of Easter. And I just began to wonder, hey, I wonder if we party hard enough on Easter. Any of you ever wonder that? I think maybe we should party a little harder. I think about DC Metro and the party scene. And here's what I know. We love to party on St. Patrick's Day. We like ourselves on St. Patrick's Day and we love ourselves some Halloween, right? We turn up for those parties. Um, Easter is a very big deal and we make a big deal out of Easter here at Grace. We're going to make a big deal out of it next week. Such a big deal, we're going to launch a new series. We're going to launch a series called Rebel with the Cause. And I hope you're inspired already as we think about what Easter means and, uh, and what it might mean for us to know a rebel with a cause. This morning, I'm going to try to prime the pump a little with a little rebel talk. Not too much rebel talk because I'm honestly not too much of a rebel. So I think the most rebellious thing I've done in the past few years is maybe wear this t-shirt this morning. My wife said specifically, Matt, you gotta stop wearing that same t-shirt every time you preach at church. I said, I'm a little rebel, baby. I did not know it was gonna be about 40 degrees in here. <laughs> My rebellion's haunting me. Uh, no, um, in all seriousness, that's what I wanna start off with this morning is uh, just the mark of a rebel. And if we could think about I mean, one thing that rebels with causes have in common, ultimately getting at uh, a part of the narrative from Holy Week where we can lean into and say, how are we seeing Jesus execute this mark of a rebel? What is he after? Why is he after it? But um, I wanted to, because I'm not so rebellious, maybe take a page from the playbook of my favorite rebel ever. I think we all have our favorite rebel. I want to introduce you to my favorite rebel. This rebel uh, inspires me today, inspired me as a young person, inspires me today as an older person. This rebel changed my life. I'm actually convinced that it should become mandatory in school districts across America, middle schools and high schools, mandatory curriculum to study this narrative's life. You might know him. His name is Calvin. Whose life has been changed by this rebel? Get some inspiration from Calvin. Uh, I love Calvin. I've been into Calvin for a very long time. Calvin is absolutely a rebel with a cause. He bears the mark of a rebel. I get very excited about Calvin. Uh, actually, so much so, uh, sometimes, you know, as a pastor, I go to pastor's conferences. And during lunch, kind of pastors sit around the table and we get to talk and get to know each other. 
And almost always, pastors would ask me, hey, Pastor Matt, are you a Calvinist? And I say, you bet I am. I'm a Calvinist. Okay, that's enough of that. Here's the thing. Well, there's, a, there's a comic behind me. It's the perfect comic to understand what it means to have the mark of a rebel, particularly here with Calvin. Calvin wakes up and he says, every day is the same. Every day is the same. School, school, school. Every day is the same. This is how the story has always been told. But a rebel with a cause in the midst of the monotony, in the midst of noticing that every day is the same, says, no, not today. Today I go for the gusto. Replace Calvin with any other real rebel in history, and I think you'll find the same thing. Rebels with causes bear this mark, the mark of a rebel. And it is this, to put it succinctly. Rebels with causes are able to look at what is. They look at what is and they understand. This is how the story has always been told. I understand that. I understand that this is how the story has been told for a long time. But it doesn't stop there. Rebel with the Cause goes on to imagine. Here is how the story is going to be told from now on. Rebels with Causes are narrators. Rebels with Causes are story creators. And that's what I want to lean into today. Thinking about the story that is created over the course of Holy Week leading up to Easter. The story that Jesus intentionally narrates for us that changes all stories. To get at it, I actually want to, to, to break for a moment and um, you know, bring in kind of an impromptu part of a, the message this morning. And, you know, it's, it's going to be a, a little heavy. You know, we've been able to joke around a little bit about rebellion and Calvin. Um, but I work with teenagers and working with teenagers can be heavy in this day and age because um, we, we're working with a younger generation that uh, is facing tough times. As you know, uh, almost every week, there's one or two more stories about tragedy striking the lives of our teenagers. Teenagers increasingly fearful. Teenagers increasingly angry about what's going on. And that's who I work with. And um, part of my job is to, to listen to learn, to notice, to brainstorm, to find ways to encourage, to find ways to bring hope or healing to some of the lives of the teens who are struggling. And uh, so it makes sense that yesterday, when thousands upon thousands of teenagers who are hurting gathered, that I would go. And that I would listen, and that I would learn, and that I would observe, that I would take note that I would try to understand. What is it that this generation is crying out for downtown yesterday? And, um, and I hesitate to bring this up because in no way do I want anything about this message to be political. It's not the point. But I do want to just share one thing with you that was impressed upon me deeply during my time at the march yesterday. And I actually, I feel like, 
even though this is a late addition to the message, and by late addition, I mean like about 15 minutes before first service, I decided that this was something I wanted to bring in. Because I couldn't sleep last night. Stayed up all night thinking about my message, thinking about the passion story and the story that it is and the story that it can be in terms of its ability to bring hope and its ability to bring healing, its ability to rewrite all stories. And I thought, man, it, seems, it would seem impossible for me to, to have this conversation and not uh, in, in any way address something that's weighing so heavily on my heart and mind. And maybe weighing heavily on your heart and mine. But I was there yesterday, and here's what was impressed upon me as I listened, as I observed, as I watched, as I took notes. What is it that this generation is crying out for? And overwhelmingly, in some ways helpful, and in some ways maybe not. I don't know. But overwhelmingly, it's a generation crying out for a new story. It's a generation who in some ways bears this exact mark of a rebel that says, we understand this is the way the story has always been told. We're imagining how the story might be told from now on. And for me being there as a pastor, it was particularly difficult because the second you get down amongst the crowds, you're greeted with sign after sign after poster after poster of a generation saying, to somebody like me, we're actually totally disinterested in your thoughts and prayers. And at first, it buried me. I was devastated by that sentiment spoken across the board by a generation. Hey, just so you guys know, we are not interested in your thoughts and prayers. But I went home and I had a chance to process and I had a chance to really think. And what became overwhelmingly clear to me was that this is a sentiment born purely out of desperation for a new story. And I'm convinced that it's not a generation who sees zero value in prayer. But it is a generation who associates thoughts and prayers with the way the story has always been told. And it's a generation who is done with that story. But it was difficult. What started out as difficult, though, I would say by the time this morning came around, it had become almost like fuel to my fire of excitement to be here this morning, to be here telling part of the story of Holy Week. Because that is exactly what Holy Week is about. It's a generation of young people crying out for a new story. And this is the essence of Holy Week. Holy Week is about a new story. Holy Week is about telling a story that has never been told before, a story that is brand new, a story that actually can change and rewrite every other story that ever has been and ever will be. And the more I thought about it, the more increasingly convinced I became that the story of Holy Week, the story of the passion of Jesus Christ, the story of his death and resurrection is the story that a generation is desperate to hear because... It's a story that opens eyes to see the divine nature on every human face. And that's something the generation wants now. In some senses, yes, this, the, the story of the Holy Week is a story that points us toward hope in the future. But even talking with my teenagers today, they said, 
what does the story have to offer us now? Because we're in pain now. And I was reminded that again, actually, this is something that the story of Holy Week has to offer. It opens our eyes to see the purpose in pain and purpose through pain. The story of Holy Week is a story that opens our eyes to see the divine nature on every human face for a generation who's been sold the idea time after time that they're nothing more than cosmic accidents. This is a new story. And it's a story that brings hope. It's a story that brings purpose. It's a story that creates meaning for their lives. And that's something we need. It's a story that robs death of any final say though it acknowledges the sting of death now. It's a story that opens eyes to our purposes eternal as a human race and replaces despair with hope. In the promise that Jesus' story can become my story. If nothing else this morning, we have the opportunity looking ahead to the single event Christianity is founded upon. We have the opportunity to decide it's more important than ever that we lean into what Christ's death and resurrection actually means for how we go about the rest of our time in this flesh on this earth. What light can this story shed on our perspectives, on our actions? on our pursuits, on our dreams. Because there's a generation of young people looking for people who can tell a different story. Can we tell a different story with our lives? I'm going to be honest with you. Um, Discussing the march was not something I had planned on doing. And having an entire message planned out um, with a specific focus and then kind of breaking from that, calling an audible, um, in some ways becomes difficult for me to reconnect with the message. So what I'd like to do, if it's okay, is just take a minute before I read our passage this morning and just kind of give it all up front. As we think about a section of Holy Week, as we make an observation, as we think about what that observation might mean, I'd just like to tell you right up at the front what we're after, right up front what we're after. Then we'll read the scripture and pray. Here's what we're after this morning. We want to make an observation of a moment where Jesus is doubling down in his devotion to a a very specific way in which he is desiring to be known by us. And it's actually a very crucial, it's a very crucial detail of the Easter story, of the Jesus story, of the Holy Week story. How is it that we have come to know Jesus? Who who is he to us? And in our passage today, we're going to notice a moment where Jesus doubles down in his devotion to being known a very specific way. Because for him, 
Confusion about who he was was unacceptable. Confusion about who Jesus was kills the story he was trying to create. And we want to dig into exactly how is it that Jesus wanted to be known in the passage today. And ultimately, how does that change the story? Why does it make the story more powerful? And what might it mean to us? Even more full disclosure, here's, what, here's how Jesus wants to be made known. And we're going to see this in a few minutes. But Jesus is doubling down in his devotion to be known by us as the author of all life. And we don't often talk about Jesus like that. Many times when we talk about Jesus, we talk about Jesus and, and his concern for people. We talk about Jesus and his love. And we talk about Jesus and his miracles. And we talk about Jesus and his teachings. And we talk about Jesus and how he turns things upside down. But I think not often enough do we remind ourselves that who Jesus came claiming to be, and he allowed no confusion about this, was that he was the author of all life. And in the passage we're going to read today, Jesus doubles down in his devotion to being known that way. Because ultimately what he is after is he is after something that has to do with us. And here's the deal. Jesus's greatest dream is for any one of us, each one of us, all of us really, but there's a celebration for each one of us that, that does this. Jesus' greatest dream is for us to acknowledge him as the author of all life and then subsequently be open to receiving him as the author of my own life. And that's his dream. Know me as the author of all life and then receive me as the author of your life. Because Jesus wants to get a hold of my story. Jesus wants to wrestle the pen out of my hand and write my story. Because he writes stories of redemption. He writes stories of resurrection. He writes stories of healing. He writes stories in which death has no final say. He writes stories that give purpose to pain. And that's what he wants my story to be about. So this morning, let's jump into the text. Let's read this passage I've been describing so thoroughly already. But we're going to come out of Matthew chapter 26. Actually, I'm going to read it from my notes because it's a different version. We're going to uh, jump in to, to Matthew 26. And it's... Um, it's toward the end of Holy Week. Jesus had entered into Jerusalem a few days prior, famously riding a donkey, passing through streets lined with adoring fans who were waving and laying down palm branches as they believed Jesus was their hope for liberation from Roman rule. And they brought their palm branches as symbols of their nationalism. After this triumphal entry, Jesus goes on to spend the next few days whipping the city into a frenzy, healing, teaching, confronting religious leaders, proverbially kicking the hornet's nest. 
Later in the week, he dines with his closest followers one final, t- one final time. Many of us have come to know this as the Last Supper, a dinner during which he takes bread and wine and says, from now on when you take part of this feast, I want you to remember, remember me and I want you to remember my story and I want you to remember what it means for your story. At that time, Jesus replaced the traditional Passover elements with bread and wine. In, in essence, in another way, saying, I understand this is the way the story has always been told. But here's the way the story is going to be told from now on. Jesus then goes out to a garden after dinner, prays, and ultimately is arrested. Here's where we pick up the text. I'll read it, and then I'd like to say a prayer. Matthew writes this, starting in verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward. And said this, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Capital offense. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? Let's pray. Lord, ultimately what we're after this morning is a word from you. We'd like to hear from you. We'd like to get the sense that you are speaking to us. God, will you help with clarity? Will you help us hover over the heart of what it is you have to say this morning? Will you make it clear your hopes and dreams for us in this time, but beyond this time? Lord, as we consider how you revealed yourself to the world so many years ago, I ask that this morning we might get the sense that you are revealing yourself to us now. Amen. All right. Well, to lighten it up for a minute, I did want you to know that earlier this week I was talking to Robin about the passage we were going to be studying this morning. 
I described it to her. We read it. And I asked her what she thought. And with a surprising little amount of hesitation, she keyed in on Jesus's silence and maybe how powerful that might have been. And she looked at me without hesitation and said, well, it seems pretty clearly that Jesus truly understood the power of being silent sometimes. Hmm. And I said, what do you mean, hmm? And why do you got to cross your arms at me when you say that? She said, well, do you want to be like Jesus or not? So I stayed silent. No, but she was right. And it is Jesus' silence in this passage that we will key in on because it is in Jesus' silences where we see Jesus doubling down in his devotion to being known a very specific way based on, based on how he wants his story to be told from now on. Generally speaking, this whole night was about one thing. It was about religious leaders finding just cause to send Jesus to the cross. Legal justification, legal grounds for his crucifixion. And they were struggling. For whatever reason, they were having a very difficult time landing on the jackpot of a conviction with testimony that was either true, testimony that was corroboratable, more than one person, or testimony that revealed Jesus committed a crime that was worthy of death. And we hear in this story that actually the night was a story of false testimony after false testimony. Lie, twist, make something up, whatever it was. Actually, when I read this passage for the first time, I was reminded of something Abraham Lincoln said way back in the day. When he <laughs> said, I actually think it was hilarious. He said, no man has a good enough memory to be a successful liar. And then I also remembered the old question, why is it that ghosts make terrible liars? Because you can see, because you could see right through them. <laughs> Serious? Okay, I heard that. False testimony after false testimony. And this picture in my mind of somebody bringing an accusation to the high priest. And he's saying, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus said this. And then the high priest saying, oh, okay, you heard him say that. When did you hear him say that? You're sure you heard him say that. Okay, well, who else was there with you when you heard him say that? Jeb was, Jeb was there with you. Who's, okay, I don't know why Jeb, but Jeb, Jebediah, biblical name. Jeb was there with you. Where's Jeb now? We need Jeb here. We need Jeb here to corroborate. Where, where's Jeb? We need you both in the room to both say, okay, well, go get Jeb. Run out there now, wake him up. Get Jeb, bring him here. Come on, let's go, let's do this. So the guy runs off in search of Jeb. And in the meantime, the high priest says, okay, well, in the who's got something else? What's next? And just testimony after testimony. Until finally they do hit the jackpot. They do hit the bingo. Two guys come forward. Hey, he threatened to destroy the temple. The temple is sacred. It's where God's presence is. You don't threaten to destroy the temple. Two of them were there. The high priest says, yes. We found our grounds to send this man to the cross. And he brings to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what do you have to say about this? And Jesus doesn't play ball. Jesus remains silent. And in his silence, 
Jesus is saying, actually, that's not the way the story is going to be told from now on. The story is not going to go like this. Hey, mom, dad, what was going on with those three guys that were crucified outside the city the other day? Oh, yeah, Johnny, good question. Yeah. So here's the thing about the crucifixions. There were three of them. The guy on the left, they said uh, he apparently was crucified for robbery. And then likewise, the guy on the right, he was also crucified for robbery. The guy in the middle, they crucified him because he was silly enough, stupid enough to make a threat on the temple, which you know you never do, Johnny. Jesus is saying, hey, that's not the story that's going to be told from now on. Because that's a story that breeds confusion about who I am. And this moment is so important because this is a for the record moment. This is a moment where Jesus is saying, hey, this is official business. And for the record, there can be no confusion about who I am, who I am claiming to be. So I'm not budging here on this charge. And this is not Jesus just being petty. I know what it means to to be uh, petty about what the record says. I played high school football. I've been in Saturday morning film sessions the morning after a Friday night game, and I've been rewinding the play. I played free safety in high school. And I would be rewinding the play, and I would say, oh, well, technically the linebacker didn't make contact with the running back until after I had the running back down. So for the record, it should be a solo tackle, not an assisted tackle. So let the record show that in that game, I had eight solo tackles and six assisted tackles, not seven and seven. That's petty record keeping. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is doing something very significant. Jesus is doing something very crucial here because Jesus is demanding that he for the record, is known for revealing himself to be the author of all life. And the story that Jesus demands to be told from now on is that, oh yeah, Johnny, the three guys who were crucified outside the city last week, I know this, I know two of them were crucified for robbery. And the guy in the middle he made this audacious claim that he was the author of all life. He stood before the high priest and he said, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the Christ. And furthermore, you will see me in the future seated at the right hand of power and you will see me coming on the clouds of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, make No mistake. This is how I desire to be known by you. I need you to know me as the author of all life because what I'm after is for you to allow me to be the author of your life. Jesus, in the moment, does respond when he's accused of blasphemy. And he says, yes, it is as you say. Hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And right there, what he's doing, he's, he's quoting a prophecy that was spoken and written 600 years before this moment about the Son of Man. A prophecy from Daniel that describes the Son of Man, that describes the very end of days, describes the last days, the final days. 
and describes the Son of Man being right there in the midst of it all. In addition, the prophecy describes the very beginning of days, the first days of life as we know it. And guess who's there? The Son of Man. And Jesus is quoting a prophecy spoken about the Son of Man that says, this is the one who was there at the beginning of days. This is the one who is there at the end of days. This is the one who ties it all together. This is the one who was and is and is to come. Jesus says, that is me. That is who I am. I am the one humanity wonders about when humanity wonders, is there God? Can I know God? What is God like? I'm the revelation of that. Jesus is saying in this moment, I am known. I am the one who can answer humanity's question about why life exists. And in that moment, Jesus is taking out kind of this proverbial highlighter and he's highlighting moments from the past three years, moments from his teaching, moments from his ministry where he has revealed this in a small way, but he's doubling down on it, saying, listen, I said this before. I'm going to be very clear about it now. I am the author of all life. Remember when I talked about this? I talked about it in a different way, but I said, I said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Remember I said that? Remember I said, me, I, I am the Father. We're one, actually. Remember when I said, I alone, I lay my life down only to tape it, take it up again. And I alone have the authority to lay my life down because I'm the author of life. And I alone have the authority to lift, to raise my life back up again. This is the story Jesus wants to be told. And I've already covered one reason why this is crucial for him to be known as the author of all life. Because it impacts our decision to invite or disinvite Jesus to author our lives. But there's another reason too. And it's worth exploring just a little bit. It's, it's a reason that's more for our head, more for our thinking. But it's something I think it's really important to think about because it challenges our concept of God. It challenges our concept of who Jesus Christ is. See, the first story that Jesus refused to acknowledge where he was sent to the cross for threatening to destroy the temple. You think about that. There's just room for confusion. You think about the reaction to even after his resurrection. If Jesus was unclear about who he was, if he was unclear about his claim to be the author of all life, and he just seemed to be some guy who had been disposed with miraculous powers and tremendous insight and wisdom and chosen by God to be some kind of atoning sacrifice for humanity. That is a very different story. That's a story that goes like this. There was a shepherd who loved his sheep and so that the, so that his flock would never have to experience death, he chose one of his most beloved sheep to experience death so the rest of his flock didn't have to. That's the first story. And that's a much different story from the story Jesus is demanding be told. The story of the shepherd who he himself experiences death. 
so that his flock doesn't have to. Does that make sense? The first is a story about a shepherd who chooses his most beloved sheep to lay down. The second story, the Jesus story, the real story, is a story about the shepherd who takes on death on behalf of all the sheep. The first story is dystopic. It's twisted. There's an, ele- there's an element of punishment involved. When I think about that version of the story, I think about a story I used to teach in middle school. Some of you may have heard of it. It was written by Shirley Jackson. It was called The Lottery. It paints the picture of this community that is perfect, this utopia. There's no problems. There's no greed. There's, there's no envy. There's no crime. Everybody is, it's love and peace and there's no problems whatsoever. Except for one thing. Once a year, one child is chosen to be stoned to death and experience pain and experience punishment, and experience suffering so that nobody else had to. That's that's a dystopia. That's not the story Jesus is telling. Jesus is saying, I want all the pain, all the suffering, all the death to be experienced by me so you don't have to. This is the story of Holy Week. This is the story of the passion of the Christ, the story that takes us from Palm Sunday to Good Friday to Easter. I want to close with this. And I think it's really interesting to think about in a true way. And I've said this before. The thing that Jesus is after is nothing less than for us to willingly offer our story to Jesus and allow him to author it. Here's something that's true. None of us write the first few chapters of our lives. The first few chapters of our lives, we don't even know there's a pen. We are so unaware. We have no control. But at some point in our lives, our eyes are open to realize that there's a pen and our story's being written. And most of the time, the pen is in the hands of our primary caretakers. But as soon as we realize there's a pen, there's something inside of us that wants that pen. And so even at a young age, there's a back and forth of the pen that happens. Child, parent, child, grandparent, child, caretaker, whoever it may be. Parent, taking primary responsibility for the writing of the next few chapters in the child's life. But the child's saying, hey, let me write a little bit here every once in a while. Put the pen in my hand. And then you get to your teenage years and it becomes a full-on tug of war for that pen. Hey, mom, dad, hey, grandma, grandpa, hey, whoever it is taking care of me, you had that pen in your hand long enough. It's time to hand it over. Time for that pen to be in my hand because I've got all kinds of ideas about the story of my life I want to write. I've got all kinds of chapters I want to include about places I'm going to go, people I'm going to see, experiences I'm going to experience, wealth I'm going to accumulate, ways in which I'm going to be known to the world. I'm going to write this story, so put the pen in my hand. 
And most of the time you got the parents saying, no, you're not ready to be writing that story. I'm going to keep the pen a little while longer. But by the end of adolescence, for the most part, we've all wrestled the pen away from whoever it is that had been writing a lot of our story. And we've got that pen. And I guess we call it independence or we call it freedom, whatever it is. But we finally wrestle that pen away. We say, the pen is mine. I'm writing this story and we hold it high. And one way to think about what Jesus is after by making himself known to us as the author of all life, desiring for us to invite him to become the author of our life is Jesus is saying, hey, let me have that pen. Let me write your story. I can write it better than you can. I'm the author of all life. Let me write your story. It's going to be a story of redemption. It's going to be a story of purpose. It's going to be a story way beyond any kind of story you could possibly write for yourself. It's a story where you don't have to be afraid. It's a story where death will have no final say. And it's a story in which the ending is already written because it's going to be a story that's patterned after my story. And the end of that story is already written. For some of us, uh, maybe that's the challenge this morning is just to consider who's got the pen? Maybe we're not there yet though. Maybe we're still, hey, have I come to know Jesus as the author of all life? And am I interested in all in allowing him to become the author of my life? But maybe it's who's got the pen. And if it's who's got the pen, I just want to encourage you to think about some shifts. Because when I've got the pen, I know the chapters I want to write are about how I want to be known to the world. I want to be known as smart, funny, passionate, handsome. But when I put the, Jesus, the pen in Jesus' hand, say, Jesus offered my life, it, 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 something changes. And it becomes, Jesus, how do you want me to be known to the world? And even more so, Jesus, how, do you, how would you like to make yourself known to the world through me? I know when I've got the pen in my hand, I'm thinking about writing chapters about whatever it is I want to accomplish in this life, whatever goals I want to achieve, whatever ambitions I have high in my mind. But Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, hey, Matt, give me the pen back because I want to write different chapters. And so I give Jesus the pen and now what I'm looking at is I'm, as I'm asking Jesus, what is it that you want me to experience in, life, in this life? Jesus, what is it that you want me to accomplish in this life. Jesus, what is it that you want to accomplish through me in this life? And I allow those chapters to become my ambitions. It's actually an incredible amount of freedom that comes along with that. Releasing the pen. We have uh, one final thing to do this morning. And it's just to participate in communion and the elements are prepared. And if you're here this morning and you're here to help pass out communion, I would invite you now to begin passing out. And as the elements are being passed out, I would just ask that you stay with me for a couple more minutes. Because I want to encourage us to think about communion 
in a very specific way today as we participate in the sacrament. In a few minutes, each of us is going to be holding a wafer and each of us is going to be holding a little cup of juice. But in reality, each of us is going to be holding something that is so much more than wafer and juice. Each of us is going to be holding information about our stories. Because one of the ways we think about communion is we think about communion as a bookend to our story. When I take communion for the very first time, what I'm doing is I'm receiving Christ. I'm acknowledging his lordship. And what that means is it's, it's just another way of saying I am conceding, Jesus, that you are who you say you are, that you are the author of all life. And recognizing you as the author of all life, I'd like to invite you to be the author of my life. And so something that we should consider when we take communion is to what extent have I actually handed my pen over to Jesus to allow him to write the brand new first chapter of my story. And when we hold the wafer and the, and the juice, in addition to all that, we're holding information about the very final chapter of our stories. When Jesus first did this, he said, we're gonna do this now and I'm not gonna do this again until we feast together in heaven. And he points us towards understanding this sacrament as a foretaste of the feast he has promised. And I want to encourage you to spend a few moments wrestling with what that really means to you. Because that right there might be the key to you relinquishing your pen and allowing Jesus to write your story. In the youth group, sometimes when we talk about life and we take communion, sometimes when we, when we think about ourselves in the context of eternity, we talk about it a very specific way. And the way we talk about it is this, we say, what Jesus wants for us is to be so excited about dinner that it changes the way we think about breakfast and lunch. I just want to say that again. One of the things Jesus hopes for us is that for each of us, we're so excited about dinner that it changes the way we think about breakfast and lunch. Have you ever woken up in the morning and you knew that night you were going to have the feast of your lifetime? Maybe it was your birthday. Maybe it was your Thanksgiving. I don't know what it was, but you knew that night you were going to party and it was going to be an amazing feast. It's likely that you cared a whole lot less about breakfast and lunch. It's likely that you, are, that you are a whole lot more willing to maybe give lunch away because you knew about the feast that was coming for you for dinner. Ultimately, Jesus is saying to each of us this morning, I want to be the author of your life. For the next couple minutes, uh, we'll just listen to Naomi play and we'll have a quiet moment of reflection. We all get to think about that. And then in just a minute, um, I'll read a passage and we'll partake the elements together. In remembrance of the words Jesus spoke, the very first time he shared this feast 
with his disciples. We're just going to read from Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 14. So when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So let's together in remembrance of the juice, take the wine, take the juice. And I'm doing this a little out of order. But he goes on to say this. And then he took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we take together. Jesus, we just come before you one final time before we leave for the week. God, we ask you to do a work in our hearts. God, would you continue to reveal yourself to us that we might know you based on how you're revealing yourself to us, not from stories we've heard or from other people, but God, that we have the sense that you're doing something miraculous in our hearts and you're reminding us that you are the author of all life and that you have great plans for how you might author our lives if we let you. God, I pray for every single person here today, every single person who is tuned in online with Grace Live. God, I pray a blessing over them. Will you be with each one this week as we go about our business? We give you glory and praise. Amen.